Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hi, everyone. What you're about to hear is a conversation I was able to have with Dr. Abraham Curavilla. While also a practicing dermatologist, Dr. Curavilla is the Senior Research Professor of Preaching at Dallas Theological Seminary and has written a number of books, including a handful of Bible commentaries. And while many of you are unfamiliar with him and his work, he has had and continues to have a profound influence on me, uh, the way I read and study and understand and apply the Bible. And because of that, I really wanted to introduce you to him, and I was excited he had a few minutes to spare uh, for that to happen. Now, a disclaimer before we begin, uh, you'll notice several times throughout the conversation that the audio quality dips in and out. Uh, that's my fault, and I'm sorry about that. I pray it won't be too much of a distraction and that you'll be blessed by it anyway. All right, without further delay, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Josiah, and I'm joined today by Dr. Abraham Curvilla. Hello, Dr. Curvilla. It's great to have you on. Good to be here, Josiah. Thank you. Dr. Curvilla is, is a preacher. He's a seminary professor. He's an author with a particular research interest being in the interpretation of the Bible for the purpose of applicational preaching. Would that be accurate? That's fair. Pretty close. Okay. Well, to that end, he's published a number of commentaries on books of the Bible, Genesis being one of them. And since we as a church family just wrapped up a series walking through the final 14 chapters of that book, I thought it would be helpful to call in the expert, call in the doctor to repair some of the damage I've done along the way and, and to set the record straight. So uh, before we talk about Joseph, the, the Joseph narrative partic in particular, I want to pick your brain, Dr. Cravilla, about Bible interpretation in general, if that's okay. Um, as I've already alluded to, you've given a lot of thought to something that is a perennial issue for every Christian who studies the Word of God. And that's this. How do we apply it today? Like, how do we apply an ancient book? When we come to any section of scripture, whether it be Old Testament, New Testament, narrative, poetry, prophecy, letter, whatever, how can we move appropriately from an ancient text to a modern application? And so I'll kick that to you. How do we do that? All of this starts with understanding, as I would put it, what an author is doing with what he is saying. Uh, Probably the best example of that is if I, if your wife tells you, Josiah, the trash is full, um, you would, you could conceivably say, okay, thanks for letting me know where the state of the trash is, and I'll file it away in one of the dark recesses of my brain. Uh, the consequence would be you would be in the doghouse. On the other hand, if you thought, hmm, okay, the trash is full, so I'd better go to the local store and buy my wife a larger trash can, you'd still be in the doghouse because you haven't understood what she was doing with what she was saying. Only if you understood what she was doing with what she was saying would you actually take the trash out yourself. Mm -hmm. So understanding what an author is doing is critical if you want to read any text for that matter for application. So this is the critical aspect of Bible interpretation as well. What is the author doing by telling us a story or telling us whatever the author does? So that's absolutely essential. So does this hunt for application, does it uh, differ for, I mean, you're a preacher, I'm a preacher. Does it change 
for us who are looking to dig into a text for the purpose of preaching to someone who is sitting down with their cup of coffee in the morning to have their devotions? Well, you use the word devotion, so because you use that word, it might be a little different. Let me put it this way. The hunt for application is probably the sign. It is the sign. The question is, how many applications from Scripture do I need a week? I am going to argue that I cannot handle more than one application from Pastor Josiah a week, or from anybody else for that matter. If it's a good sermon that hits the thrust of the text home and gives me specific application, that's about all I can handle for a week. Okay, now, then what do I do in my devotional reading? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I'm just reading through the Psalms, and I'm not thinking of anything. I'm just reading through it, soaking myself in it. Maybe I'll catch a verse every day and then just dwell with it the whole day. But I'm not necessarily reading it so that I can find something to do. Because then I'm going to, every time I touch the Bible, I'm going to ha- find something to do. And if I get five or six or seven, of my, I'm not, nothing will get done. Mm-hmm. So I would reserve the application part for probably what is told to me by my shepherd who loves God and loves God's word and loves me as well. And that shepherd tells us what the author is doing in a particular text and tells us, here's what we should all be doing as a result in, in specific application. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to start doing that this week. Yeah, that's great. So between Sundays then, when I sit down with the Word of God, if I follow your example, I'm just basically relying on the Word as a living and active word to do its work in my life without searching for something to put into practice necessarily. That, that you can do that if you want to. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that how many of them are you going to handle a week? Mm. Uh, how many applications? A formal one given to me on Sunday plus umpteen little applications that I find midweek. I, I don't. And then those podcasts that I listen to, sermons I watch, I don't know how many we can handle. Life change comes in small increments. And I think going through a book in a methodical fashion led by my shepherd is probably the best venue for that kind of application. Good. So let's say I felt compelled to open my Bible and to find appropriate application from, let's say, David and Goliath. Well-known story. I want to know how to apply this to my life. What would be some quick pointers you could tell me to make sure that I'm doing it appropriately and not just reading my intentions into the text to get them back out? Well, everything should have textual warrant. So how is the story being told is the critical aspect of things. And in that particular story for Samuel 17, there are, and there's actually more than one giant. King Saul himself is described to be head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites. Uh, David's brother is also described to be of somebody of high stature. That's why Samuel was going to anoint him first, and God said, no, no, pick the other little guy. Uh, So there are actually three giants, and all three of them are compared. Goliath thinks victory is in armor. Saul thinks victory is in armor. So here, let me give you my armor, Mr. Little Pipsqueak David. And David's brother thinks, what is this little idiot going to do in the battlefield? You go home, take care of your sheep. So all of them think power, might is the way to victory. And David alone thinks, no, that's not the way. It's because of God who is with me. 
Okay, now, so you got the thrust of the text. Now the question is, what do I do with it? You know, that's where you start thinking of application. What can I practically do to inculcate this truth in my life or actualize this truth or live out this truth that victory comes not through external accoutrements, paraphernalia, but through an experience of who God is and his presence with me. So now I've got to think through what am I going to do with that. So, so there, there are a lot of ways in which you can practicalize that, I suppose, depending on who the congregation is and who the listeners are. So it's fair to say that the text has to legitimize the application, the move to application. The text has to guide us into the goal as to what God wants. And then I have to create application that moves towards that goal. I'll, I'll give you another specific, simpler example, which would be Ephesians 5, 18, that says, be not drunk with wine. That's a fairly straightforward, the thrust of that text, the force, the import of the text is straightforward. It prohibits drunkenness. So I shouldn't get drunk. What can I start doing today to prevent that from happening, to align myself with that call? Well, that depends on the audience. Say, for instance, I am in Scotland and I am preaching to a bunch of men who every day after work drive home and pass by a distillery and stop and buy scotch and then they go home and get drunk. So what could I tell them to do so that they meet the call of the text, which is not to get drunk? You got any thoughts? Take a different route home, I'd assume. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Change your driving route. That's one way so that you won't pass by a distillery, so that you won't be tempted to buy scotch, so that you won't take it home and get drunk. So you've created a block in the usual way that I go and get drunk so that I can go the other way and not get drunk. And that's really it. You're creating new habits so that you align yourself to the call of the text. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so now watch what happened. It depends on where you are and who you are preaching to. Or if you're applying to yourself, it depends on who you are and what your weaknesses are and what your predilections are. How you specifically apply it in your life is a great deal dependent on who you are and where you are in your spiritual pilgrimage and what your weaknesses are. And hopefully, when I'm being preached to by my shepherd, the shepherd is the one who has already, because he loves God and word and God's word, knows what the author is talking about, but he loves me, knows me well, and knows where I need to go. And so therefore he can suggest appropriate application for me. And I might say, that's a great idea. I'm going to start changing my driving route or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. So the burden then of uh, for Samuel 17 or Ephesians 5.18 is static. The thrust of the text is what the thrust of the text is. It's the application depending on context that changes. Is that right? Exactly. The force of the text doesn't change across continents, oceans, and eras. It nice. remains the same all the time. The author is doing only one thing with what he's saying. So when it comes to this process, uh, that of moving from the Bible to application, ancient text to modern uh, man or woman of God, when it comes to that process, what are some common errors, maybe uh, wrong turns that you would caution us against or that you've seen uh, as you've taught in seminary classrooms and and, and preached as well? Uh, For me, the biggest one is not paying attention to the text, not paying attention to how it is written not paying attention to the nuances of the story or if it's a non-story, how, what are, 
how is this being told? What are the repeats? What are the wink, wink moments that make, you know, what are the clues in the text that help me catch the author's agenda or what he's doing with what he's saying? Mm-hmm. How do we grow in our attentiveness to the text as readers of the Bible? If you were to counsel me, um, Joe Christian, I want to grow in my ability to read attentively and to see these things that you're seeing that can lead to proper application. How do I do that? How do I train myself to do that besides prayer and dependency on the Holy Spirit? Yeah, those two are important, no doubt. Uh, the other thing is to, uh, I always say that these things are more caught rather than taught. So one way would be to apprentice oneself to the master carpenter, so to speak. Or somebody who is doing this well. Um, if I were in your church, I'd probably apprentice myself to you and to learn from you what uh, you are doing it and how you're doing it, and watch and listen and attend and question what you're doing carefully so that I can learn from you. And that's probably the best way to do it. If you want to do things yourself, it's probably not a bad idea to get a, um, um, you know, get one of those interlinear Bibles that have both the Greek and the Hebrew. Blue letter Bible is a good one. It's free. It's online. Uh, those are useful to have. Or Lumina, L-U-M-I-N-A. That's free too. It's also online. To help you pay attention to what exactly are the Greek and Hebrew words being used and seeing some things. And then, of course, having a good set of Bible study commentaries or books on the Bible are helpful. So if the goal is, or a good way to learn to do this better is to be apprenticed or mentored or discipled in the ability to read the Bible, uh, I kind of team you up for this one, but what role does the pulpit play in a church life? Like, is that not one of the main disciple-making moments as far as teaching how to handle and read and pay attention to the text? Uh, yes, I would say the bigger role is in directing my life. Secondarily, I learned from what is done in the pulpit how I should do it myself. But notice also, if I do a lot of that during the week, how many applications can I handle? Mm-hmm. Uh, so something you may want to consider. Do I want everybody to be like Josiah Boyd? Um, maybe not. I think it's more important for me to learn how to take those applications and change my life and control my anger, pride, greed, lust, whatever, and become a godly person. Uh, I would say that's the primary goal. Yes, if you can teach yourself how to do these things, that's great too. But I think the primary goal ought to be life change. Yeah, for sure. So that's Bible interpretation in general. Let's shift to Joseph in particular. And and the story that we as a church family just came through, one that you're very familiar with. Amazing story. Amazing story. From Genesis 37 to Genesis uh, chapter 50. Uh, as you've studied that narrative, Dr. Carvilla, what emerged as an overarching theme or themes in that uh, in that text? Overall, uh, the whole book of Genesis, I don't know if you've gone through the rest of it with your congregation, but the whole thing is based on blessing. So it starts off in the first 11 chapters with God creating in order to bless people. And then with sin coming in and obstructing that blessing, he picks one person, Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25, and moves Abraham towards blessing and teaches us what it means to obtain God's blessing by faith. And then 25 through 35, 36 is the story of Jacob 
where it talks about how to experience the blessing. And then Joseph's story, 37 through 50, as you said, is actually, now that I've gotten the blessing, how do I become an agent of blessing to others? Which is God's intention, to bless his people and so that they may in turn become a blessing to the rest of the world. And so that's the overall arch of the narrative Joseph uh, story, is how to be a blessing to others. Hmm. The amazing thing that hits me about it is how, yeah, how Joseph becomes a blessing by means of his complete trust in God's sovereignty and his absolute integrity. That's how you... I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you what about the story as you studied it and as you have preached it was most challenging, encouraging, edifying for you. Uh, You've mentioned one already with Joseph being used. Um, For us in in our church, a lot of people were amazed at Judah and the transformation of Judah from Genesis 38 until... Uh, just remarkable how the Lord uses less than yeah. perfect people. Yeah, I probably confess people. along with the rest of your folks there that uh, more than the life of Joseph, that's probably because I've heard the life of Joseph before. I was actually more impressed with the life of Judah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'd agree thoroughly with that. It's just incredible, especially that last mm-hmm. speech of his. It never, never ceases to move me to tears. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's how he changed from a callous, self-indulgent, selfish, mm-hmm. self-focused person to somebody who just didn't even care about himself and he was going to give himself up for a brother so that his father would be saved of the grief. And this father had already said that he didn't love Judah as much as he loved that other son. Yeah. That didn't matter. He was going to give himself. It's just incredible. That's just amazing. <laughs> and it's amazing how the author uses language to tie things together. We saw him in Genesis 38 pledging the identification marks of his family to who he thought was a prostitute at the time. And then he, in the speech you're referring to, pledges his own life for the sake of his father. It's incredible how the author ties those two things together. Yeah, because he realized he wasn't righteous. There are only two people in Genesis described as righteous. That's Abraham and guess who? That prostitute Tamar. There are only two people who are righteous. And this man realized that. This woman is righteous. I'm not. And just this past week, we came to uh, Genesis 49, where Jacob on his deathbed is doling out blessings and, and poetic prophecy to his sons. And it comes to Judah. He bypasses the first three, basically removing leadership from them because of their foibles and missteps. But then he comes to Judah. And next to Joseph, it's got it's the most shining um, affirmation of one of his sons, and yeah. just such a long way from Genesis thirty-eight. It's incredible. Yeah, and you know, if you're reading actually through thirty-seven, you suddenly wonder it stops at thirty-seven and jumps into thirty-eight, and you wonder what in the world is going on here. I mean, if there, you can you can make those stories up. It's just incredibly bizarre and sordid, you know, incest and everything in there. It's kind of fun, but. <laughs> Looking at that story as a whole, the Joseph narrative, you know, in your mind, how do you think that story, the, the life of Joseph, as recorded in Genesis, calls or invites or commands or empowers God's people to be more like God's son? If, if the end game is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, how the first book of the Bible, which is only pointing toward Jesus, how does this story of Joseph do that for us and call us? into that uh, pursuit of the image by the power of the Holy Spirit. Being being a blessing, as Joseph was, is also another aspect of being Christ-like. You cannot be Christ-like unless you are a blessing. You cannot be Christ-like unless you are whatever each pericope of the Bible calls you to be. 
you cannot be fully Christ-like. You can be in parts, but if you want to be fully Christ-like, you got to be a blessing too, like Joseph was. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, within that larger thing, integrity and willingness to suffer and willingness to you know recognize somebody else, all of those things um, are mm-hmm. integral parts of what it means to be a blessing to others and thus how to become more Christ-like. So we become more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit as we move through Scripture, identify the thrust that the author has, what the author, like you say, is doing with what he's saying, and prayerfully apply it to our lives. Embodying that thrust, we become more like Jesus, who perfectly embodied them all. Yeah. If I'm a Scottish drunkard, uh, when I change my driving route, and don't stop at the distillery and don't buy scotch and don't take it home and get drunk. I'm one more tiny step closer to becoming Christ-like. Hmm. And so on and so forth with, with every text of scripture preached. Hmm. So from this last pericope, this last section of scripture that we just passed through last week, where we looked at the final three chapters, where in our sermon, we looked back, forward, and present. So we looked at the blessings poured out upon us, the blessings anticipated, and the blessings extended. So what we are moving to is, as we as God's people, motivated by how he's blessed us, what he's promised us, extend blessing to others, we are more like Jesus because he extended blessings for our sake. Yeah, that's actually right. And then looking forward, as uh, both Jacob and Joseph did to the Exodus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole thing is kind of a that celebratory procession of the burial of Jacob is actually an, a rehearsal of the Exodus. Everybody leaving Egypt, one carrying a coffin, the other one carrying you know bones of uh, of Joseph. Well, it's interesting. We notice how uh, Jacob, looking forward to the blessing of the promised land that he's now moved out of, he is anticipating being returned. And sure enough, by the end of Genesis, he his body is returned. But it says at the end that Joseph died and he was buried in Egypt. And it isn't until in Joshua 24 that we find that they took him with them. So you're left kind of hanging. Like, did did he return to the promised land as well? And yet, lo and behold, Joshua comes along and don't worry, God kept his word. And we're kind of like that too, right? We're going to die here unless Jesus comes back sooner. And so we're looking forward to that future eternal blessing. and. Sometimes we wonder, is that going to happen? And these two guys, both Jacob and Joseph, were so strong in that. They were, it was almost as if they, had, they could see it. You know, my, I, I take care of a 92-year-old parent. I share him with my brother who lives in Houston. I live in Dallas, so we move him back and forth. Um, Dad's a living example of this. He's got one step on the other, one foot on the other side of the threshold. He is just, oh, the other day he asked me, when I see your mother who passed away 30 years ago, he's asking me, when I see your mother, what do you want me to tell her? <laughs> I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. I mean, it, it, this is just so real to him that he is just almost there. And he almost every day, yeah, I don't know why the Lord's keeping me here. And not in a depressed fashion, but it's like somebody who has had a long journey. And just before your last connection back home, the flight's been delayed. And you're like, ah, that last it's almost like that. That's like, ah, that, oh, the last, I, it's delayed. I'm just waiting to go home, waiting to see his wife, waiting to see his Lord. And he wants to carry a message from me. What do I tell her when I see her? What do you want me to tell her? Um, uh, that's exactly how Jacob and Joseph were. One step, one foot on the other side. It's so true. And you hear their 
their deathbed words. And that's exactly what a great illustration of uh, faithfulness that your dad is as well. Very much mirroring yeah. Joseph and Jacob. How, how do we grow in that type of anticipation, Dr. Carvilla? Like I, I want, when I get there, I want to be like that. I want to ache for that moment. How yeah. do we invest in that now so that when the time comes, if the Lord doesn't return, I'm aching like that? Yeah, that's a, that's not an easy one. Keeping the focus there, not getting and as uh, you know, I'm working on a commentary on um, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and I'm actually going to preach through Second Timothy next month. So as I look at Second Timothy two, it talks about three metaphors: the soldier, the farmer, and the uh, athlete. It's interesting about the soldier is asked not to get entangled in matters of daily life, so that he may please the one who recruited him. And I think that's critical. I think the more we get entangled in daily life, the more we put roots in. I'm not saying we shouldn't get involved. I think the key word is what is used there, entangled. Uh, too many roots tied to too much hope in the next government or in the next whatever, that it'll set everything straight and we'll live happy. No, 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 it's not going to happen. Uh, evil is present in the world and it will not be removed until Jesus comes back. There's only one hope. There's only one good news. There's always been only one good news since the fall. And to hang on to that and not get too, doesn't mean mean not get involved in the world and matters that are important in the world and to our fellow men. Not at all. But it's saying this is putting too many roots so that you're you're just stuck in the world. I think that's critical. I think part of what uh, the Joseph story teaches, at least the last few sections, is uh, what do I do? How do I let go of some of those entanglements and keep focused on the promises of God? Well, for that, you have to understand everything else that happened before Genesis 50, you see, all 37, that God's word will come true. Even if he, you know, he doesn't speak at all to Joseph. In all of those 13 chapters, he is the only patriarch to whom God does not personally appear, at least in the story that we're told. Yet I will trust in him. Yet I will hang on to his sovereignty and his providence. When that happens, when, when you're already inculcating that, then the last chapters make perfect sense. Of course, what he says is going to happen. The future, yep, it's going to happen exactly as he said. Because this is the God in which I've already trusted. This is a God whose workings I've already seen. This is a God that I can throw my life and put them in, into his hands. Amen. So this is how, so you see how the development of a large section is critical to understanding every individual section rather than plucking it out and preaching it as a one-off sermon. Well, I can't think of a better way to, to end the conversation than right there. I could talk to you for a long time, but I know you're a busy guy and I want to let you go. But uh, thank you for spending a few minutes with us today, Dr. Carvilla, encouraging a church family that you've never met but to whom you are connected through Christ. And I appreciate the time. I'll have to to make a trip to Canada one of these days. Thank you very much for having me. Open invitation. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you all for joining the conversation today. And, And Lord willing, we will speak to you again next week. And until then, may that peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.